Hi, I'm your host, Connor Byrne, and welcome back to That's What I Call Marketing, the podcast where you will hear from the leading lights in the marketing world and listen to their unique stories. I've met 10 incredible marketing leaders so far for this podcast, and they've had some incredible stories to tell. I've loved hearing some of the behind the scenes stories of how some really well-known piece of advertising got made. So I've compiled some of them here in this shorter podcast. First up is marketing legend and author Paul Feldwick telling me about how the Roan Atkinson Barclay card ad came about. I did want to ask you about um, one of the one of the campaigns and you talk you've talked a bit about kind of, I guess, maybe opportunity and fortuitousness and accidental, you know, seeing the opportunities and the Roan Atkinson Barclay card campaign is I remember you talking through that and I am I fair in saying that would be a good example of some of those things it, oh it is and I mean the, the 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 first the first two chapters of why did the pet why does the yeah. peddler sing are actually a, a sort of exhaustive account of uh, an examination of that particular campaign um which is wonderful and I and I would say if any, for anyone listening if you don't know Rowan Atkinson Barclay card I, I don't mind you pause go go watch it because you're gonna it's gonna make this even more interesting. Yeah, I mean, you, it's quite easy to find all of the films I think on YouTube. Yeah, if you just just Google Rowan Atkinson Barclay Card. I mean, th- th- this was a campaign made in the early 1990s, and it was, as far as we can tell, it was it was very successful. Yeah. Um, I mean, it certainly won a, a gold in the IPA's Advertising Effectiveness Award, which is which is kind of not, not an easy thing to do. Um, and, I mean, I think there are so many sort of aspects of that story which, which are worth telling because I, I, I wish there were more accounts of how things really happen in advertising rather than how they're meant to happen. Yeah. Because the way it's meant to happen, you know, is something like you, you, you invite a lot of agencies to pitch and they all come up with their campaigns for the pitch. And then you choose the campaign that you like best and the agency you like best. And then you run that campaign and it's a great success. And that's why you made such a, a great effort and spent so many months and years of your lives, you know, going through this ridiculous pitch process. I mean, what happens in most cases, I would say, is that the campaign that won the pitch um, either never runs or it runs and it's useless and it soon gets changed. Um, it's not a good way of developing successful campaigns. I mean, uh, that's one aspect of it. You know, uh, I think it would be much more sensible. Appoint, uh, appoint an agency you can really work with, work with them to create advertising, um, <clears throat> and then, you know, you may not get it right, but you know you've got a much better chance of getting it right, and then you you stay with them until you do get it right, um, unless you think they are useless, and in which case you shouldn't have appointed them anyway. Um, but what happened with with Barclay Card was uh, you know we had a sort of an absolute model pitch process, and it went on for months, and we were all over them, and we we talked to everybody at Barclay Card, and we understood the business inside out. And we did a you know massive document full of data, and we we came up with a, a sort of so-called strategy um, and an end line and uh, and an ad which was sort of I describe it in the book. I won't go into it now. An ad that was totally unlike anything that that actually did appear in the end. 
Yeah. Um, we they they approved they they chose us because they liked us, but they also liked our campaign. Obviously, that was why we bothered to do a campaign. Um, and then we sort of settled down to make the ad. And then we found there were a few problems with the ad. We then got around to researching the ad and found people didn't like it very much. Big um, problem. <laughs> but the researchers, the researchers wanted to be helpful, you know, positive. They right. To, you know, you've got to chuck this anyway. We probably wouldn't have listened to them if they had said that. They said, I'm sure we can just get this right. We tweaked it a bit. So we went on trying to rewrite the ads and they, they didn't get better. They just sort of went on getting worse, actually. And we also found that, you know, we couldn't afford to make it. It was, it was a very high production, okay. number, you know, but it was to actually get production quotes, it was coming at like sort of millions of pounds and things, completely ridiculous. Um, and we also found that the ITCA or whatever they were called in those days, the, you know, the copy, the copy clearance yeah. people who approved all the TV ads, they had a number of big problems with the, with the whole idea because um, it involved people cutting up all their competitive, all their yeah. other and saying this is the only credit card you'll ever need. No, you can't do that. You know, you can't be seen to be cutting out other credit cards, and you can't be seen to be throwing them off the tops of buildings because it's littering. So, so we had all these massive problems, and it, but but because we'd been appointed on the strength of this great pitch-winning campaign, neither the agency nor the client would ever sort of nobody would ever put their hands up and say hang on, I think we should just jump this and start again. It was absolutely like the classic groupthink Vietnam War situation. Nobody was going to do it until until it was an absolute crisis. And the absolute crisis only really came when we were about a month to going on air and we didn't have anything that worked. Um, so at this point, we kind of went, oh, can we do something else at the last minute? And so another campaign was written. And then just before I went out to, to do some a bit of research on that campaign, they said, what if that doesn't work? We'd better have another one. Um, and, and somebody had this daft idea about Rowan Atkinson. Um, so we bunged that in as well. And actually, even then, that, that Rowan Atkinson script were, were totally unlike the ones that actually appeared. They were, they were sort of um, Rowan Atkinson doing something completely different. They weren't actually that funny. So... I mean, I came back from the research and I, I said, actually, these don't work. Neither of these work. The only thing I can utterly salvage from this research is people say, you should use Rowan Atkinson because he's funny, whatever he does. Um, now, I mean, this was not honestly much to have learned after six months' work. And, I mean, it would have been understandable if the client sort of lost their right. <laughs> yeah. I mean, partly because... They, they had no alternative because they really had to be on air. And we did a, we were able to offer them enough of a way out. We said, look, if we can get Rowan Atkinson, we can do something with Rowan Atkinson that will work. Um, so luckily we could get Rowan Atkinson. And even more luckily, Rowan Atkinson had, had a really good idea about the character he wanted to play which was basically the character that later became Johnny English. Yeah, um, yeah. So, I mean, he brought all that to the party. So, I mean, actually what happened here, you know, we've been faffing around for six months or more doing a sort of classic advertising, thinking about strategies and propositions, blah, blah, blah. And then when we finally got into a sort of crisis situation, the thing that walked in off the street and saved us was an entertainer. Yeah. Um, with an idea for some entertainment. 
you know, the peddler walked in singing, go. if you yeah, like. Yeah. And, uh, and it worked brilliantly. I mean, you know, yes, I mean, it's an ad. It talks about the product. It talks about the benefits of the product. But first and foremost, it's a celebrity. Oh. And it's entertaining. And, and these ads are very funny. They're actually made by Rowan Atkinson and John Lloyd with the same sort of enthusiasm that they made, not the nine o'clock news or Blackadder. Yeah. And, um, you know, they stand up alongside those series as, as bits of entertainment for the most part. And that's why the campaign was a success. Next is former Paddy Power head of brand, Emer McCarthy. And she talks about two of her favourite Paddy Power ads, Rodri Giggs Rewards and Jose Mourinho Jackpots. You've done some phenomenal advertising work in your career. So far, more to come. Um, and this is going to be a difficult question. Your favourite it is very hard. And I, I know, and, yeah. <laughs> and I've been blessed. It's like picking my kids. I, do, I was going to say, um, <laughs> your favourite advertising I, child. <laughs> I think, um, look, you know, and it hasn't all been me, obviously. Um, I, I fervently believe um, the best campaign, campaigns come from a group of great minds. Um, but, oh, like... I think a priority ticket's the O2 and that amazing Florence and Machine track. And if I had written brings, one down, it was that. <laughs> I bring, I, it brings tears to my eyes, actually, yeah. that ad. It's such a, a lovely time in my life. I was very happy. Um, I was very happy in work. I was very happy personally. It was just a lovely time in my life. Um, and I, then I think of Rodri Giggs, right? Which, um, and as I was saying, I really feel the same with priority tickets, actually. When you've got a brilliant product, um, I feel it, it, you know, it comes, the best work comes from a great product proof point. Um, and with Rodri Giggs, actually, you know, all we had, all we were briefed with was, um, look, Paddy has a new loyalty scheme. And um, it was kind of, a, we sat around the room and we were writing that brief going, Jesus, if we were really true, like, pa- pa- loyalty, like who... Who goes to Starbucks because they're loyal? You only go to Starbucks yeah. for your free coffee. It's bullshit. <laughs> and actually, that's how we writ, how we writ, how we wrote the brief. Um, we wrote the brief like that. You know, we already had a sense that you know we should call bullshit on loyalty. Right. Um, so we called bullshit on loyalty, and it came back from the agency as obviously this is the words that came back as, but didn't um, make the final cut, which was fuck loyalty, live for rewards. Um, and we jumped off the table at this and went, this is fucking brilliant, so true, <laughs> you know. Um, and then, uh, then you know, you apply loyalty to the world of football and there's a million places you can go to. Transfer windows, Saudis, you know, like, you know yeah. so many places you can go. Um, but actually, the Rodri Giggs one was just amazing amazing how did that come about because that is amazing and again i'll go back i said probably at the start like only paddy could have done that so how did that come about i'd love you to tell me that yeah it came after um a massive piece of strategic work we did um around uh, the mischief that we wanted to do um and what we realized was that we put actually every single ad we've ever done on the wall in our boardroom um and each of us rated the ads in terms of what they felt was proper paddy power and what fell short of the mark. Okay. Um, and one of the attributes that came out as a common denominator across the great ads was when Paddy talks 
um, about truths and actual cultural moments and being on the ball around topical topicality. So less creating fabricated advertising rules that say O2 would have done. Yeah, Paddy yeah. lives in the real world and actually Paddy's an anti-brand. And if, you know, Paddy was really being true to itself, I wouldn't advertise at all. Um, so the idea that um, we could you know, take a true real life story and put it on TV was very appealing to us because it felt very Paddy because Paddy is a very real world brand, a lo-fi real world brand that's, that says it like it is. Um, and if we're going to go out and talk about loyalty, um, then my God, there's there's an amazing story out there um, about Ryan Giggs. So we approached Rodri, um, who was up for it, mad for it. And we wrote the most, well, PCCP wrote the most amazing script. I remember when, when, um, Kevin, the creative director there read it. I, I, I get very emotional, Connor. <laughs> I get very emotional. And I remember when he read it, I left the meeting room and I had tears in my eyes. I just, and I had this awful, and my overriding fear was that it, you know, I wouldn't get it passed. We wouldn't get it past, um, the Paris that be and Power Tower. And but no, everyone loved it, and um, it happened. And the best thing about that ad um, is actually the music uh, is uh, the Charlatans and the only one. And you listen to that track, and with that storyline and the brilliant line of "We do need milk," I'm going out for milk. Like just and on all the Easter eggs in that ad, it, it set us up actually for um, what I'm actually going to say is my favorite campaign. I think. Um, so it's not even Rodri. It set us up for um, Paddy Power Games, Daily Jackpots and Don't Think You're Special. Yeah. And the reason being, I love that, is another example of a, of a product-led brief where we had a challenge to, and, and, and the, the gaming industry is just rife with norms, right? It's, you know, it's, it's noisy, it's colourful, it's loud. Um, it's very fabricated, you know, advertising world yeah. that everything's created in. Um, and it's all glossy and shiny. And how do you bring a very authentic, um, real brand like Paddy Power into that space? And learning from Rodri, um, taking a real story, a truth, an actual thing from real life and bringing it into the artificial world of advertising works really well for us. So we had a product which was daily jackpots in that Paddy Power's jackpots are one every day. And while we were writing that brief, I wrote it with a guy called David Samuel, great guy. And we'd write often my briefs to get briefs together. And it was like, Jesus, Paddy Power's jackpots are a bit shit really. Cause if you win one, you only have like a day of glory and then someone wins one tomorrow. <laughs> so, you know, it's a bit, like, don't think you're special just because you've won one. And the agency came back with that line of don't think you're special. And it came from the era of selfies and social media and Instagram yeah. and everyone thinking they're a little bit special. And, um, yeah, it came from that. So that was the idea that we loved that, you know, with Paddy Power, if you win our jackpots, don't think you're special, really proved the product benefit that they're daily jackpots. Yeah. Um, and then we let, and when I say stars aligning, Jose had just been fired by Real, and um, it, obviously in our category, we can't use anybody who's currently in, involved in the game yeah. for obvious reasons. Um, <laughs> so when we heard that he'd just been fired by Real, 
we were like, Jesus, do you think he'd do it? And, you know, how long do you think he'll have before he starts his next job? And, you know, will we get time out of him? We're like, we'd probably end up paying millions and then he'll get, he'll and then, uh, you know, just yeah. get another job and we have to pull the ad. And, um, but anyway, all the stars aligned. And um, luckily for us, Jose had an incentive as well. He felt that the UK media positioned him too seriously and actually he had a sense of humor that they didn't know about and that he was self-deprecating and that he, he you know he could take the piss out of himself and when he read the script he was like I love this you know it's exactly what you know the UK media need to see from me and um, so I kind of everyone had an invested kind of game to play um, and Jose was deadly he was so sound and came and really leaned into the jokes and that's what we look for in Paddy Power yeah um, we look for talent that is prepared to lean into our world rather than us lean into theirs. Um, so by that, I mean, you have to be self-deprecating. You have to be prepared to um, have the piss taken out of yeah. you. Really. Um, because they be the joke almost in a way, yeah, you know, some, yeah. I kind of do. And like, Paddy is a very self-deprecating brand. It's a very Irish thing to, you know, um, yeah. keep everyone down. <laughs> The brand gym's John Goldstone told me about the background to making the famous and really successful Hovis Gowan Lad commercial. I would love to ask you about um, the the very famous Hovis Gowan Lad campaign that, you know, obviously you got the product right, people were starting to believe in the brand, and then you created this incredible piece of advertising. Can you talk to me a bit about how that kind of came about and some of the successes that that brought for, for the company? Yeah, yeah. Again, I mean, that's I, you know, after the sensations launch, that's probably you know not a second most you know proud piece of of marketing I've ever done. It's terrible English, sorry. But <laughs> um, yeah, so that was that was that was that was really interesting. So I went into Hovis. The, the the bottom was kind of dropping out of the of the of the business. Worked you know with my team and the broader kind of leadership team to you know get the quality good which was which was super important and just to try and instill a bit of belief into the into the business so um i actually joined in the in the uh, march of 2008 just to give you an idea of, of time and we said right <clears throat> we're going to give ourselves six months until september and in september we're going to relaunch this brand all guns uh, blazing so we didn't it was no sense no time at all really to, to fix the quality problem to you know do everything that needed to do, to, to be done so a couple of months into that six month period, um, I started thinking about um, uh, advertising essentially. So we'd, we'd kind of got this idea from a positioning point of view that um, on the market map, there were really two axes. There was sort of a real bread axis. So you had kind of, you know, artificial bread at the bottom and like really freshly break bread at the top and then sort of real baker's attributes. So you had sort of manufacturers, if you like, in, on one end and then kind of real bakers at the other end with like, you know, the aprons and the hats and flour. And Arbor, yeah. <laughs> and the, the, so the, the top right quadrant was where we wanted to be, which was real bread from real bakers. That was the proposition. But essentially Warburton's in, in, in the UK had stolen that market position from, from Hovis. So it was essentially right. We're going to leapfrog back over Warburton's and we're going to steal that kind of high ground of being real bread from real bakers. That's the job. You know, and, and we got everybody lined up to that job. So, um, we we'd had a ad agency, and I sort of went to see them. And to be honest, the response was really underwhelming. So I thought I just need somebody to 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 work on this that's going to care. And um, I met um, 
the the guys at what was called MCBD at the time, the advertising agency, they've since evolved into being uh, Lucky Generals. Um, All right, okay. Uh, um, so it's an um, amazing team of three. So um, Helen uh, Cowcraft, Andy Nairns, Planner, and then uh, Danny uh, Brooke-Taylor, who's the creative. And I, I met the three of them. And honestly, I was totally blown away. It, it was it was brilliant. So I, I sort of explained to them what I was trying to do. And they were sort of, I mean, they were outraged at how such a famous, once famous brand had ended up in such an awful position and they wanted to put it right and they took it really personally. I, okay. I wow. love that. It was just like, no, we're with you. It, this is so important. We can't let a brand like this fail. So um, to be honest, the, the, the brief, I didn't show them a single slide. I just talked to them and I drew a couple of kind of, um, you know, maps out on bits of paper and, and, and so on. Um, gave them a book, which was like the history of the of the brand that had been somebody had done a, a couple of years before. And then I remember going into their um, into their agency, and Danny did the presentation. The other guys were were there, and there were a couple of creatives that had worked with Danny. And he was going, just imagine um, a young lad leaves home to go and collect a loaf of bread for his mum, and he runs back through 122 years of history. And honestly, I, I've got um, goosebumps now just sort of um, remembering yeah. it, but they, they, that was it. It was kind of um, pretty much a, a post-it note, you know, um, sort of pitch. And I was like, absolutely, I can see it. I can, I can totally see it. And obviously the, um, the 122 years was the, the length of time the brand had been around for. And it evolved into an amazing um, advert which was 122 seconds long, the, the long form. So a second for every year the brand had been around for. Um, and I just love working on it. I mean, it, it came with some, um, some real challenges. So um, the, the, the budget, to, the production budget was over a million pounds. And the most that uh, Premier Foods had ever spent on producing an ad was 200,000 pounds. So that was that was essentially the the budget I was working within. So um, I just remember thinking, <laughs> this is literally going to cost five times more than we've ever spent on making an ad uh, before. So um, so I, I I sort of tested out basically the promise that had been given to me when I joined the company, which was we'll give you whatever you need to make this successful. And it was definitely some difficult conversations with like the procurement team and so on, but. We really went for it. And to be honest, if I hadn't got it signed off, I would have left the business. It was that important to me to do it well yeah. and to do it right. And I was so confident that the idea was so good that it would help to transform the fortunes of the of the brand. And um, you know, really my job was to was to was to secure the funding. And then the the agency team did a together with amazing um uh director who very uh, uh, sadly uh, died quite recently actually quite young um but yeah it, it just turned out to be just so brilliant I, I remember when I was first saw the rough cut before it was you know uh, graded or it had music over it and everything I just thought this is so good it's gonna be absolutely brilliant so uh so yeah yeah it was um voted by ITV viewers the ad of the decade um, um, within the decade that we launched it within. So um, yeah, really, really, really proud of that. And I mean, linking back to my belief around, you know, marketing should sell more stuff. 
that really was. I mean, literally, the rate of sale increased the day after it first went on air. I mean, you know, we would get uh, EPOS reports through from Tesco or whatever, and literally, you know, more people bought our bread the day after it went on air. I mean, it was because bread's a you know, it's a daily purchase yeah. habit. It's got ninety five percent penetration, so. If you do something right, it has a pretty immediate um, impact. And tied to your belief, it's, it's remarkable as well. People oh, definitely. on it. And- definitely. What I love with the, the bit I missed out of the story is that um, we, we got talking about. Um, so well, I've done some research um, with 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 uh, Hovis Bias just to try and get a sense of what people thought of the brand. It was literally the first thing I did, like the first week I was there, and all people could talk about was the. Um, um, Boy on the Bike advert, which was yeah. uh, made by Ridley Scott in 1973, um, and everyone was like, "Just, just remake that. You know, do do a new version of that. You know, that's that's all you need to do if you're going to be successful." And um, and, and so there was no hist- no memory, no no um, memory structure. Again, using Byron Sharp language, other than that one advert that was you know 40 years old by the time I I rocked up, and what. Um, the MCBD team uh, said was, let's let's make something better. You know, let's not be, um, you know, um, intimidated by the past. Let's let's make the next great Hoversad. Let's make one that's even better than that's been made uh, before. And um, I, I really think they did, which was which which was you know fabulous. It also felt like it belonged to that ad if you know what I mean like it didn't feel like it was a massive departure from that and like it felt like it was part of that story almost like you could see yeah exactly two almost live together which is um and it's actually something that sorry on that ad one last thing when we we did a bit of work together a few years ago and I <laughs> I sent that ad to everybody that was going to be working <laughs> with you going this is who we're working with <laughs> so yeah. I was like my fanboy moment but um but one of the things I know the brand Jim talk about as well is, is the concept of fresh consistency. So something that, um, you know, we see a lot of marketing is people coming in and saying, change everything, <laughs> right? Like, you know, new CMO, we change everything. So that, I guess, have you examples of kind of seeing that in some of the brands you're working with and where that kind of really adds value? Yeah, I mean, you know, the, the, the campaigns that I, I most admire are the ones that... Um, you know, have a really, really strong, you know, creative idea at their at their heart, and um, you know they, they they go on and on, but they stay just as fresh and, and relevant as they did from 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 day one. So, um, actually, is one of the another reason I was attracted to to join PepsiCo because I I love the the Walkers uh, campaign. So, um, you know, the first Gary Lineker commercial was when he retired from from football and he'd been playing in Japan and he, he came back and he was a Leicester lad and Walkers is a Leicester brand and he was this kind of nice guy that had never been sent off. So there was an advert that was made, I think it was 1994, the first one, and that ran all the way through to a couple of years ago, so like 25 years. Um, and essentially the same idea, yeah. which is these crisps are so irresistible that even that nice guy Gary will try and pinch them I mean it was that was a like a formula that ran for for 25 years and um but it was always kept really fresh and really relevant through the context or through the other character that Gary bounced off or whatever um equally so um 
like um, Guinness, for example. I mean, I, I, I always loved um, that sort of really clear creative idea, quite kind of epic in its yeah. ambitions. And the way that, um, you know, Good Things Wait has evolved into their, I mean, there might have been two or three since, but into yeah. their kind of latest idea, it seems grounded in a really clear product truth. Um, there's a sort of a, a freshness to everything, but a real consistency that runs through the through the brand. So, so I, I really like that. And actually, the, the, probably the best example that I've worked on is um, is Marmite, and I, I think you probably know the the famous sort of love it or or yeah. hate it um, campaign. But um, I started working on that with um, um, Adam and Eve. Right. With, the, with the agency um, when I first joined um, Unilever and it had been running for a long time but it definitely lost its freshness it was starting to get a bit repetitive and a bit stale and um, and um, again I mean just work with brilliant agency people and the, the, we had a a real kind of issue at the time where people were buying Marmite, but not using it. It was getting kind of left in the back of the cupboard and people were trying other things instead. So we, we developed this idea called Marmite uh, neglect. And and the idea was, you know, um, you know, love it, hate it, just don't forget it. And, and it, it breathed completely new life into, you know, a really famous, lovely, long running um, campaign with a really strong, you know, brand idea at its heart and linked into a, into a, into a, into a brand truth. So I, I, hang, you know, for me, the, the best thing I could do with that campaign was to keep it going and breathe freshness into it rather than, as you say, to, to rip it all up and do something completely new, which is often the, the instinct of, of um, marketers when they, they first go into work on a brand. Kay McCarthy of MCCP and then Damien Devaney of TBV Global told me about some wonderful Guinness work. So firstly, Guinness Dancing Man uh, and then the Michael Fassbender ad Quarrel. Remember Joe McKinney, um, Dancing Man, the, the I'm going to ask campaign. what was the campaigns at that time? It would have been that one. That was Yeah, that was an interim campaign, believe it or not. So I actually worked on the tracking of that campaign. So Milward Brown, everything was pre-tested in Guinness long before anyone else was able right. to keep that. Just, and it was, um, was uh, ARC's advertising. Um, and there was a gap between campaigns and um, the geniuses that were at the time came up with this as called, it was the filler campaign, but it, it was a disruptive piece of communication that had everybody dancing on the dance floor and went on to have like really high memorability and impact on the brand, actually. You, you've been involved in some incredible and iconic ads um, in the Irish market, some some that still still run to this very day. I'd love you to uh, talk me through some of those. And, and I think people might be aware of the, the Christmas ad and, and ads like Quarrel that, that you were involved with, and both for Guinness. Yeah, um, uh, I I was lucky to get a job working for Mark Odie on Guinness, who who was a real like he understood his onions when it came to marketing, and uh, and uh, it was a brilliant team, a brilliant team. Niall Tracy, Mark Odie, uh, Johnny Cal on the team, and we really learned our dweeb. And uh, I had a Tommy Kinsella was head of. Uh, advertising, so he was the guy that managed the advertising through the system, and then Sheila Cunningham, April Redmond, from in, in, in now in uh, Unilever, Sheila Cunningham, and then we had Mal Stevenson, and 
Pat and Mark from Irish International. I mean, right. top, top. Yeah, yeah. And Sean Whitaker, God rest him, was was like this genius planner. Um, and we did Quarrel, which I thought was a really good ad. But I was that was my first ad. I mean, I was uh, you know I was learning on the job, right? Right. And it was a brilliant idea. And uh, we re relaunched the uh, beautiful song by a young Irish musician who never passed away, Nick Christopher. Nick Christopher. Yeah, it was yeah. a beautiful song. Stunning. We asked yeah. the family before, and it was okay. And it's just a beautiful song. Anyway, Fastbender was on it, and this is before he was famous. And we were uh, so we did it in Ireland, and we were over to the states, and we're doing it in the states. There's always a bit of crack. Cause New York, in New, like in New York, they have a police department just for making films, you know. And I in New York, <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's to, to promote the city, it's a really strategic yeah. decision. Brilliant. But in New York, like <laughs> at one point, when we were doing a shot, and a guy would walk up and go, and he'd look around the set and go. You're only small time <laughs> because they just have such a standard, right? It's like, what are you doing in our city using it as a backdrop? But this, anyway, we're making the movie and uh, uh, it was all good. We're down the docks because Michael Fassbender had to go in and swim a bit. And uh, But then between takes, it, there's a lot of time standing around. And um, I, I was thinking, I want to do a play when I'm older on the reality and the politics of it, I'd say. Because it's, it's dynamite, you know what I mean? Yeah. If Tommy Tierney got his hands on it, that's <laughs> unbelievable. But, uh, so Fassbender is one of those guys that met Matt Damon. You know, all the girls like him and all the boys want to hang out with him. Yeah, yeah. He's, cool, he's one of the coolest guys you could ever meet. Sound and down to earth, deadly. And we're having a chat. And he's from Kerry and we're talking about Munster Rugby and we're choking away. And then he asked me about rugby. And so... And we ended up, he asked me, how, well, how do you scrummage? So I said, come here, I'll show you. So we were around the back of the, the, the warehouse scrummaging. And we were both competitive. So we ended up <laughs> going for it a little bit. And his take was up. We didn't hear it. And then you, we looked up and there was a whole American set looking at us in horror. <laughs> Here's the client having a scrum with the talent. <laughs> Doug Cameron of DCX walked me through how the brilliant Pay Less Shoes campaign was arrived at. Humour was something kind of I was picking up like some of the examples you had, humour was there. Is humour important in the dramatisation or does it matter? I think it, you know, to me, there are a lot of different ways of doing it. You know, some can be like deadly serious and suddenly it provokes in a really intense yeah. emotions and be humorous. So I'll say that, you know, the campaign over here that we're most famous for probably is our pay less shoes prank i think it, oh, yes. uh, you know, it, like when we were looking at all the earned media and the news at least our news shows uh like we never you know had much time to kind of get much advertising press for it or you know i don't know whether it would have gotten it anyway but I mean, it really took off on all the you know cbs nbc explain, all the, you explain know, pay, less for, pay less shoes for people who haven't seen it or, or know that one just briefly yeah, explain so, that one that's brilliant so, so that, that's a pretty good story <laughs> to you so um, it actually came through um, a, a friend of mine who had worked at a, a private equity company um, at the time. Uh, the, you know, without going into details, they kind of specialized in um, bankruptcies and <laughs> things like that. And we probably should have seen a, you know, a bit of that, that coming beforehand. But the, the had decided to, hey, look, we, we need a holiday campaign. So, and they own Payless Shoes. Um, Payless is a really large kind of you know, the shoe <laughs> retailer. Um, they, you know, started in the, you know, seventies kind of grew, you know, then these were really inexpensive shoes. It'd yeah. be the sort of place that your mom would want to shop at. You'd be really embarrassed to get to get shoes from there. And I remember my mom was like, pay less. It was great. You know, you should, you know, let's just get shoes there. And I'm like, Oh God, I can't go to a well, place called. When I was less. a backpacker in the States, I bought my shoes and pay less because I couldn't afford them anywhere else. So yeah, go. Yeah, they, they, exactly. Exactly. So we, we actually started interviewing a lot of pay less customers just to kind of put it in this whole, like, let's understand the tensions they're feeling. And that attitude of the ad was exactly what people are like, look, 
it's embarrassing. Um, you know, no one who is kind of into fashions and, you know, things like that would ever do it. But actually the shoes are really good. You know, it's like you can get Airwalks, even these brand names and things like that. It's like the, that's uh, the, and you had this very kind of pragmatist <laughs> ideology. It's almost like, look, I, I don't, you know, I don't want to be sucked into pain, overpaying, you know, what I like is the, you know, it's just 10 bucks is perfect for me. You know, like, 20 bucks. And that way I'm not getting suckered into paying like $300 for the exact same item of shoes that I'm going to get elsewhere. So that started coming through. And so we're just like, look, already that's an interesting tension to play off of. So, you know, exactly your embarrassment over (laughs) doing that, uh, that's, that's part of it. But then we start looking at what are the emerging tension points that come through that. Um, And, and it's also once we're clear, like this is, you know, if you shop elsewhere that you might be very fashionista oriented and kind of aspiring to be a fashion elite, um, the, uh, you know, and a lot of the budget ones even do that. It's like, look, here's how, uh, you know, like you can get all the glamour of, you know, it's expensive, you know, great fashion world, but you know, at the low, low price, pay less customers were just not that like you're almost kind of by virtue of you're going to a store called pay less <laughs> that's going to yeah. screen out at all those consumers is going to bring in all the kind of pragmatists. And so saw very quickly that, okay, this is going to be a strong platform for them. Looked at their history. We saw that for 20 years, they had done this really kind of pragmatist style advertising and did really well. And then sometime around 2000, the moment they started doing poorly was when they abandoned that and started to do this kind of elitist fashionista type advertising, you know, like for yeah. everyone who's Target over here at Old Navy, these two, uh, you know, kind of like, hey, we've got this kind of cool fashionista thing and we're bringing it to Main Street for nothing, you know. <laughs> and you look at that, it was the moment in which the, you know, their downward trajectory began and right. just kept going and going. So we were like, look, how do we go back to those days of here, you know, it's this pragmatist brand that's almost making fun of overpaying and having a lot of fun with that. Um, but let's do it in a modern kind of context. And so that was, again, the interview started showing us at the time. And these are, this is, you know, it's kind of creative research. It's like just doing it the way that yeah. like, look, if you're writing a movie or a you know TV show, you want to kind of get in there and kind of understand really quickly all the things that are, that are going on. Um, started, you know, I remember um, the, the, our, you know, strategist Laurent um, at the time that was kind of came running in. He's like, listen to this, you know, like here's someone complaining about influencers and going on a rant for 20 minutes. <laughs> and we were like, Oh shit, this is, you know, let's look at kind of Hollywood, look at influencers, look at, you know, what are these modern tension points that no one's made fun of yet and no one's really spoken to yet. And we could become the first to do it. You know, like we know Payless can always speak to this kind of what we're calling superficiality overdose, <laughs> yeah. but no one's speaking to the influencer part of that. And because no one has, we can do that in a way that is going to kind of blow up. So because the, the media, uh, you know, will want to report on it. So um, what we had ended up doing was, um, and I guess I should also say that the client was really proud of their product um, okay. when they wanted to say like, we do have really high quality shoes. We're just not getting credit for it. And so it all started coming together when we were like, look, let's, you know, create a fake store, call it Palesi, give it the fashionista a, right. you know, name, um, change it, you know, from Payless to that, you know, go, throw a party and try to convince influencers into just ridiculously overpaying for it. And then kind of, uh, you know, greatly embarrass them by telling them that their shoes are from Payless. <laughs> and the, uh, you know, the, this kind of prank had been done before, but we wanted to kind of inject an element of class war into it, I guess, which hadn't been done. And that was kind of the macro tension. If you're paying, you know, you, you just kind of feel like I don't have a lot of money for shoes and there are all these elites spending all this. Uh, and so everything, we're just how we recruit, where we put the store, where we, and then also they didn't have the kind of like, you know, there's quite often like, okay, Folgers coffee, you know, like we've tricked people. I think they did it in the sixties, you know, into overpaying for it and by serving it in central park or Chevy did it where, you know, we've tricked people into, you know, it's, it looks like a luxury one, but it's a really a Chevy. Yeah, yeah. You're like, okay, that's been done before, but we have to take it to the extreme, you know, and kind of inject an element of like, this is, 
kind of a, yeah, some form of class war and that we were feeling at the time in America, especially was kind of really emerging. And again, we didn't, you know, we're, we're not a serious political player or anything like that, but, yeah, yeah. you know, and on both sides of the political spectrum, it, it is kind of really strong kind of, you know, like Bernie Sanders, <laughs> you know, the, you know, kind of the same, like it was kind of going across uh, America at the time. And so wanted to dramatize it where we're like, here's Beverly Hills and let's get kind of these influencers who really kind of conjure that and let's design the store in a way that conjures that. Let's have a, you know, really elite party in a way that brings that up. And then, you know, like, hey, you know, and get them to pay. We got them to pay the, at the most, it was like $650 for a pair of these are $10 <laughs> shoes. Um, and then, you know, I, I remember one of them, we were, you know, like, what if we tell you this is, uh, you know, from Payless? And he's just like, uh, no way. <laughs> you know, just this whole like heart sinking and, but it was ultimately because they were influencers and kind of like kind of really enjoyed the, you know, we're going to put them onto the news and onto the, yeah. everyone's just like, Oh my God, I'm famous and I'm being seen on the, and so it, we kind of did it in a way that we weren't going to, um, uh, you know, humiliate anyone. And we actually yes. had to check before we did it where we were, you know, like one person who had signed away, like we got everyone to sign away their, uh, you know, the, the rights to, to, to use it. But, that, you know, he was a consultant, one of the best people was a, you know, he was a consultant in the shoe industry. He was just like, this will destroy my career. Uh-huh. <laughs> they were like, we'll take it out. And it actually just started checking up with people like, hey, it's okay. We'll this. Okay. Like, oh my God, that's great. Put it out there. So uh, there was a brilliant. bit of a um, part of it. It was lucky that we were in LA where, you know, they were kind of behind it. And then if you look at how the campaign took off, um, it was the, you know, the, like all these media companies were, you know, like, ABC, it was like 20 minutes, you know, here's behind or eight minutes, you know, good morning, America, you're behind the pay less prank, you know, yeah. what are these, what are these people called fashion influencers and kind of went into that, um, you know, Colbert, you know, like ABC, CBS, they, you know, a professor interviewed us, you know, some guy from Wharton um, <laughs> from the national news, you know, and then started <laughs> to up globally. So my, you know, my parents saw it in Canada and all these different news networks up there and, and stuff. So it was Brilliant. the, uh, the, uh, the, it was just kind of a funny, yeah, the pretty funny situations. I think it was one of the the uh, the, the three top uh, most covered campaigns in terms yeah. of the, the news. And I think in part because it was this very kind of everyday kind of American, uh, uh, you know, like yeah. just resonating at every level. And also in part because like if we, when you craft these tensions, dramatize these tensions properly, that's where humor really did help to, to your point. Yeah. But, you know, like in this case, it was like everyone agreed with it. Like, you know, like if you look at the, I don't know, Kaepernick um, Nike ad campaign, people, you know, start burning shoes in the, right. yeah, know, the, the, yeah. or the Gillette toxic masculinity, they alienated a huge segment of their, you know, like humor in this case was like, look, we're, you know, ESPN, like all these, everyone loved it. You know, the fashion yeah. folks, you know, loved it. The, you know, hip hop, uh, you know, streetwear, you know, like journals loved it. Like, so it's kind of the, that's where humor can often be a very powerful tool. Now, you know, also pulling at heartstrings can be powerful, you know, as well too. Yeah. But I'll, I'll say that, you know, to me, that's what a lot of purpose, you know, quote unquote purpose brands in this um, is that once it becomes very serious, it either kind of falls into a fairly like cluttered space where here's, uh, you know, these kind of feels yes. a bit like elite telling you to do things. Um, or, you know, it just feels, you know, like kind of cliche, like here, uh, you know, like, look, I agree with the values, but I, you know, like 50 corporations have told me the same thing in the last, you yeah. know, last little while. And, you know, it's, it's maybe the right thing to do, but it's just hard to notice that, you know, the, the humor can really make it cut through. Um, but it all just can make it feel a lot less like didactic, you know, where it's just like, here's a brand, you know, kind of preaching at you and telling you, <laughs> telling you, you know, here's what your value should be. And so that, you know, that's kind of, to me, it's very useful because it tends to kind of span political divides where, uh, you know, you could, you know, be apolitical and love this. Yes. You could be on either end of the spectrum and love it, you know, like the, uh, the, the, you know, so, so that's kind of where humor can often, uh, and that's why I think like in politics, the, you know, democratic party, for example, should, 
you know, they're just, you know, terrible at using humor unless it feels like kind of a condescending <laughs> humor. But to me, that's what they're, you know, the, yeah, just why our country is in the, the pickle that it's in right now. So. <laughs> Uh, lack of humor. Lack of humor. Uh, we need it. We need it. Finally, Paul Durvin, CMO with the National Lottery, talked to me about one of his favorite commercials, O2, play them next. We made some really good ads in O2. Um, we, like, one of my favorites is the one where we had Brian O'Driscoll and Paul O'Connell, Johnny Sexton, and we kind of dropped them in a park in the upper end, um, um, Rathgar. Yeah. And they're just basically playing like, you know, jumpers down, goalpost stuff. And they were just playing, they're playing with the community. And, and that was, that was a wonderful ad to make. And it just worked out really well. The weather was great. And we had some music from uh, Badly Drawn Boy, which was the track. And funny enough, we had no idea what the message was. This is terrible to be, to be telling, honestly, but we had no idea what the message was. And Paul Pelbert talks about this all the time. We knew the, the associations we wanted a bit. Like at the time, this was for our, the World Rugby World Cup. And, rub, and rugby at the time were all big, masculine kind of, you know, if you think of not dark, but like it was very masculine kind of war kind of metaphors. And and then we had this lovely kind of just play around the park with some kids and people laughing like Paul O'Connell and Brian laughing out loud. And it was just, we wanted to appeal to households yeah. and, and families, not just your, you know, your larder drink and rugby players and things like that as well. So we knew what we wanted to do. We had no idea what the message was going to be till about like three weeks after we made the ad. <laughs> uh, um, I remember I was on a different shoot. We fixed it in the edit. I was myself and Emer sitting down during waiting for setups in a different shoot in London, trying to figure what might the message be, uh, which is not the most unusual thing. Uh, so that was a wonderful ad. I have to say the the launch of the O2 venue um, yeah. with. Um, uh, the, the Florence Machine track, Cosmic Love, um, yeah. which Emer will take full credit for, um, and probably rightly so. Um, and again, that's a really interesting ad because we struggled for six months to figure out what the campaign would look and look like. And we eventually bought an execution, not an idea. And, hey. and, and there was a great Schweppes, Schweppes reference point that we went for, as well as, um, the director had done a wonderful ad for Adidas. Um, and, uh, and so we bought an execution. Um, and, um, but it's funny because that actually is just a, that is just like the most wonderful piece yeah. of advertising. It's a beautiful now, ad. Yeah, it is beautiful ad. And like it's now probably it created all these things later on in the industry where slow mo became a thing where you had yeah. these people dancing slowly in festivals and stuff like that. But so we're responsible for that terrible stuff. But, but the, the, <laughs> we got, we got very, very lucky with the music because that track, because, because at the time, Clarishine wasn't known in Ireland, but she was just weeks away from becoming known. Right. And, uh, and so we got very lucky with that. Well, that's it for me in this shorter episode of That's What I Call Marketing. I hope you enjoyed getting behind the scenes and hearing about how some of these amazing ads were made. You can, of course, listen to the full interviews with any of these amazing marketers on That's What I Call Marketing. Next time, I'll be looking into some things that didn't quite go to plan for these marketing leaders.